Uh, we are in the book of Judges tonight. So we continue verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Word of God. And we are... Uh, so if you have it as an app or a Bible in your lap, uh, we're in ultimately chapter 12 uh, tonight. But we're going to start in chapter 10 for... Uh, for reference, because I never want to just start pulling something and then seeing where it goes from there. <clears throat> if you don't own a Bible, keep it. It's our gift to you. Uh, we, as long as you read it, of course. Just not use it to sort of prop up your couch or something. We're going to go to the Lord right in prayer and uh, dig right in to our text this evening. Pray with me, would you please? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the opportunity tonight to open your word. You promise is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit. A discerner in the tenth thoughts of the heart. You tell us that as the snow falls down to the ground and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on, causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. So is your word. It never returns empty. And, and I pray tonight, Lord, that you would color in the black and white and make it so clear that your word, Lord, would so profoundly impact us tonight. We don't do this so that we could just get information, God. We want to know you better in the autobiography that you wrote so that we could understand you better and understand your love better and your call in our lives better. So, Lord, open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive what you want to tell us today and get me out of your way. Immerse me, fill me with you. So, God, that tonight we would, in every second, be captivated, Lord, in your word. And that we would respond appropriately to a God who so loves us. So, thank you, Lord, for every second you give us here in your word. Now, Lord, make it burst open. Come alive and speak to each of us profoundly, individually, as well as corporately, we pray now. As we commit this time to you, redeem every second, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. would say tonight as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. In the book of Judges, we have a period of time to kind of put things into some form of reference. Israel, after wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, has taken possession of the promised land, or at least a portion of it. There were still battles to fight. There was still land that they hadn't gone after, much like our own walks. Uh, the promised land, as much as we can love to just sort of reference it towards heaven, and there's a bit of a problem with that and a bit that it's all about battles and the challenges for this land of great fruitfulness. And, 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 but Jesus had promised that the moment we said yes to him, that there was this promise of abundant life. And I understand that's abundant life now, not just someday when we stand before him and become like him because we see him as he is. And, and please understand that the Lord has for us so much more than just, okay, I'm saved, I'm not going to hell, things are good. Um, I'm good. I mean, if that were the case, why doesn't he just kill us the moment we say 
yes to him, since there's a life to be lived, what's that time spent for? And, and understand, he wants us to have this abundant life, this place of great fruitfulness, but there are battles that are going to be fought in that. Battles over where we've come from, battles over the society that we live in. And, and what we find is, is that once we get into this place, we kind of get into this routine where somewhere in it, this is good enough. And good enough is just not good enough for God. And, and understand, he's got amazing, magnificent, you know, he's got these, that's what his plan is. Abundant life. And we're kind of with, well, I'm breathing and things are okay. I've got a pulse spiritually. That's okay. But if that's a living, then man, we are, we're robbing ourselves. He's got so much more. And so in this book, after they've come and taken possession of this promised land and the battles are going to be fought, they bought in, they, they fought enough to get a bit of land. And now they, as they're starting to grow and become fruitful, there's more land to be gotten, but they're not going after it. And now comes this horrible cycle. It happens once you get in that rut where Jesus is your savior. That's really great. But then what happens is you get really blessed and then you turn your back on the Lord. And then you find yourself in this place where you're like, how in the world am I as a Christian in this environment making these choices with these people? And then you go and you finally get to the point where you hate it so much, you cry out to God and you're like, God, please restore me to that place where I knew that it was just me and you. And God does something magnificent and often uses people in that, in that process. Well, that's really what we have in the time of Judges. And what's going to ultimately stop the Judges, to be honest, is the rightful king will take the throne. And, and that's important to recognize that there is this time where we'll say yes to Jesus as Savior. But until we say yes to him as Lord, this will be our life. This will be it. We'll be at that point where it'll be like we're on top of the world with him on one day. We're on the mountaintop. And then it seems like within a week, we're in a place where it's like, how in the world did I run back to that addiction, to that violence, to that thing, or just the stupidity of a life that I used to live? How do I do that? And God says, that's not my intention for you. My intention, when, when, when you talk to somebody, you say, as a Christian, how, how are things? And they're like, well, you know, it's like a, it's like a lift or it's like a, you know, like a roller coaster. It's up and down. That is never intended to be our life as Christians. That is the world's life because if the circumstances are going well, we're good. If they're not, they're not. Well, in the book of Judges, we have 13 judges. And there are several, of course, that are really built upon. We're familiar with some of them. I mean, some of you may be a little less familiar with, like, Othniel, of course, or Ehud, or Shamgar. Some of you are familiar with Deborah. I'm sure Deborah's familiar with Deborah. Uh, Gideon, of course, sort of the sort of scaredy cat, turned cynic, turned skeptic, turned soldier, uh, turned psycho, for what it's worth. Um, and then we have these, and we have a few, of course, it ends with our Samson story. And of course, we, well, it doesn't actually end with it. It's our last sort of great, if you will, judge. Uh, but in the midst of that, we kind of get these characters, uh, some of which, of course, are, are sort of almost an honorable mention. We have, of course, two at the beginning of 10. We'll have three at the end of chapter 12, where we're going to kind of jump in. Uh, but understand, in the first two, and, and it's, we read these things, and of course, we don't necessarily see the relationship. And so we kind of read them as quickly as possible. Get me into the narrative. Jump me into the story. And again, and in Judges chapter 10, those first five verses, we meet two characters. Notice it says, Abimelech, that was Gideon's son, by the way, who never should have taken the throne, arose to save Israel. Uh, there, uh, and it says, after him, there arose a man named Tola. Tola means worm, by the way, again, the son of Pua, the son of Dudu. And I'm not making this up. It's exactly what it says. Uh, and, and what we have there is we have this, this character who's basically his name is Worm, 
Uh, he's from Issachar, but he's dwelling in Ephraim. And that's important to note. There's a guy who's somehow in the land of Ephraim, the tribal allotment for Ephraim, but he's not an Ephraimite. And here's a guy that you kind of go, this is just, he's not kind of where he's supposed to be. And all we read about him after that, by the way, is that he wasn't where he's supposed to. But on the other hand, he, dwelt, he judged Israel 23 years and then he died and was buried. The second guy, this guy, Yair, like Yerus, Jerus, the uh, synagogue leader in the uh, Gospels that, of course, had a daughter who was sick and ultimately would die before Jesus raises her. Well, the same name here, in essence, Yer, which means he enlightens. He's a Gileadite who judged Israel 22 years, one year less than the guy Tola. It says and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. He had 30 towns, which are called Havot or village of Yer to this day in the land of Gilead. And he died and was buried. Well, obviously, there's not a lot of narrative on these two characters. With Tola, he was a guy that was in the land of Ephraim, not exactly where he should be. And that's all we really read about him, that he died and was buried. The second guy, what we do read, though, is this guy was really fruitful. Did you notice? He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. Stop. These are easy things to miss. But Jesus, of course, rode on a donkey for a reason. And the book of Zechariah prophesied 400 to 500 years before Jesus would come. It was prophesied that Jesus would enter in on a specific day that Daniel spoke of in Daniel 7, Daniel 9. That on that specific day, Jesus would come in writing, or the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. On a young donkey, one that hadn't been ridden. Which makes the story profound when Jesus says, and, I, and we were reading this last night with me and my kids. We're reading it, and, uh, and we're reading the story where Jesus says, there's a new cult that no one's written. They'll go and get it. And if someone asks, what are you doing? Tell them the Lord has need of it. I mean, imagine if I sent you and I said, you know, Claudia, Claudia, I, I, I want you to go out there. There is going to be a Bentley with its keys in the ignition. No one's ever really driven it yet. Just go in and start that little baby up. And if the guy asks you, what are you doing? Just tell him, oh, the Lord needs it. Could you imagine the faith and the, the craziness of a disciple? It's like, okay, boss. You know, I mean, that's where Jesus is. But he has a prophecy to fulfill with that. And it's important to note that when a king comes riding on a white steed, on a big horse, he's leading people into, into battle. But when he comes riding on a donkey, he comes bringing peace why it is so important for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. And if you read, by the way, the story in Luke, what you'll find is Jesus is bawling his eyes out as he's entering into. We just never see that in the cartoons. He's crying because he sees the future of this, of this city, where less than 30 years later, it will be surrounded by the Roman army. Titus will be leading the brigade, and as he does, a drunken soldier will come and, and the people flee into the temple, assuming no one's going to destroy it. Herod had helped upgrade it. And 40,000 people are in there, and a drunken soldier throws a torch into there, and since it's wood covered in gold, the wood catches fire, and they're roasted alive. And Jesus sees this as he enters into the town. Here in our story, as we prepare, we have these two guys. This guy who, by the way, leans towards Ephraim, but he's not where he's supposed to. And this guy that's really fruitful that leads towards Gilead. Why is that important? Because that's what we're going to see here as we look at this. In between this then in chapter 12 was a guy named Yepthah. And Yepthah, by the way, or Jephthah, Hebrews pronounced J as a Y. Yepthah is, is a renegade. He was, if you will, he was, he, was, uh, he was rejected by his brothers. They kicked him out. And then when they needed him, they brought him in so that he could go and rescue them from the people of the Ammonites. And he does. 
He comes and he says, and they say, look, if you really deliver us, we'll make you leader over all of us. And he goes, okay, well, that's what I need. He takes his band of raiders, if you will. Think of it as the guy when he got kicked out of his house, he wound up starting a street gang down in, in Brixton. And as he's kind of having this sort of street gang down in Brixton, all of a sudden trouble happens in Highbury, Islington, where he came from. And in Highbury, they're like, you know, there's some real problems here, and we kind of need you. You know, and it's his brothers that are asking, we kind of need your help. And he's like, hey, you guys kicked me out. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, if you come and take your gang and help us, you, got, you can be, if you will, you can be the leader over the whole borough. And you can see him going, okay, okay. And he goes, and as he does, as he, does, as he brings this, and he gets this victory, he makes this crazy oath with God. And the crazy oath with God is, God, whatever comes out of my house first, if you bring me victory, whatever comes out of my house first, I'll sacrifice to you. And lo and behold, as he comes back after this victory, the first thing that comes flying out of his house is the only child he has, his daughter. And, and then there's a good warning, of course, to stop making, trying to make deals with God. When we approach, we don't approach his bargaining table, we approach his throne of grace. But as he was in this battle, it was in Gilead, which I remind you, just like that second of the two guys, Yair was from, he asks Ephraim to jump in, into the battle, the, the, the uh, tribe of Ephraim, and they don't come down. Sad to say, now all of a sudden they show up. The battle is now won. But as the battle is won, sad to say, now all of a sudden, and you sort of see these guys, right? You know how that is. It's like when you're having the rough time, they're gone. But the moment you sort of kind of cash into something, they show up. Well, chapter 12, verse 1 says this now. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zephon, and said to Yephthah. Now, they've gone now east across the Jordan. Why did you cross over and fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn down your house on you with fire, which we are all aware of. Fire is a really uh, efficient way to burn something down. Now, understand, here's the idea of this. They're like, they're angry because somehow in it, now that he's won the battle, they show up and say, you should have called us into it. And there's always going to be a group like this, I warn you. And they never seem to be taking on the enemy. They only seem to be taking on the allies. And you'll find it. Man, it's like you're out there and you're trying to represent Jesus and you want to take the stand and you want to be bold and you know the world around you is, is kind of looking at you like you're the purple flaming monkey. And you are the strangest thing they've ever seen. And we're in Camden. You know, and they still look and go, what in the world are you? And, and, and somehow when it, you, know, they're, you know, they're saying, do you really believe in creation? And you're like, yes, I believe God created. And I believe he created you and he created you to be with him. And do you really believe Jesus? Yes, I do believe Jesus is the only way. And I believe that he's the only one who was willing to die for you. He was the only one when you hated him offered to pay your bill. Why would you choose anyone else when this one already did all the work? And then you come back and somebody else after that, your heart's racing because of the confrontation and we don't like that here. You know, and you kind of come back from that and someone else comes up to you that you know, calls himself a Christian and they start bagging on your face. They start saying, wow, you really embarrassed me. You took that stand or whatever. And you kind of went in and you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Where were you when I was in the battle? Oh, God, give us people who are willing to stand beside us at those moments when we need to be strong. Now, what Jephthah is going to do in verses 2 and 3 is he's going to give them a proper history lesson. Jephthah says to these guys of Ephraim, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon, and when I called you, you didn't deliver me out of their hands. 
So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my own life into my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. So why have you come to fight against me this day? Now, Jephthah gives them a proper history lesson, and what he tells us here is, hey, I did ask you guys, and you didn't show up, and now you guys are going to start a fight with me? Interesting, by the way, because what we read is that in Judges chapter 10, when the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight. Now, now understand, if I could give you a basic lowdown, what you have, Israel's easily identified by water. The, the south is the dead, I'm sorry, is the med, the Mediterranean, that's here on your, it's the, it's the dead, the med, and the red. The Red Sea is Egypt, so that's your farthest south. Your farthest east is going to be the med, the Mediterranean. And right in the bottom portion right there is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, there's a little line that goes up, and then here is the Sea of Galilee. In between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is a line, and that line is the Jordan River. As that line is the Jordan, Jordan River, consider this, that everything to your west, to the west here, is the land that God promised Israel, but there were two and a half tribes that decided to, st- to stay over here instead. Now what happens is Ammon lived here, and these guys were here. So Ammon starts beating up these guys, here's the Jordan again, while all of these guys are here, Ephraim's right here. And as they take them on, there's no help from over here because these guys are a bit isolated. Then what happens is as they cross over the Jordan, they're going to start taking on the people here. And the people here, by the way, is, are going to be, this is Benjamin and Judah. And then right up from this is Ephraim. So they start taking on these people. But as they take on these people, Ephraim doesn't show up. And it is at that point now they start going, you know, we need to really fight. And this happens, by the way, when you kind of, to be honest, as I started to look at the First World War. I mean, some of you are aware of the fact that on, on Friday I'm taking the life in the UK test to see whether or not I'm I don't, qualified to be a citizen here. But, but in that, we, I, have to, you know, I have to know an unbelievable amount of facts and details. But I'm learning, about, I'm learning a lot from it, that's for sure. And in the First World War, I should say, I'm sorry, in the Second World War, when Hitler invaded Poland, I mean, people, you know, there was a declared war. But ultimately what happened is Hitler made his way into France. And as Hitler made his way into France... England knew they were in trouble and they had to call for help because at that point they actually evacuated a bunch of people out of France and said, all right, we need to, to start a confront, a, a, a sort of a unified front. But imagine if that were the same thing, because what happened is Ammon, in essence, came and took on those guys over here on this side of it. And then what happened is, is that when he got into this area, well, that's when we started getting everyone together to fight. And it was at that point now we went and got Yefa and said, hey, we need some help here. Can we have your gang's help? So all of a sudden, now that this battle's won, Ephraim's kind of shown up and said, Whoa, what's wrong with you guys? I want to burn your house down with fire. Stupid. Why didn't you call me? And Yephthah, by the way, very different. If you remember, when Gideon had his situation, Ephraim showed up there too and looked for a fight. But Gideon handled it very differently. What Gideon was, was he, would, he just sort of sucked up to him. He's like, oh, look at it. Why could we call you the very best of ours isn't as good as the very worst of yours? And he butters up Ephraim, and Ephraim kind of goes, oh, okay, and they walked away. Now, and by the way, Proverbs tells us a soft answer turns away wrath. Now, Jephthah's the other kind of guy. You don't want to actually get in Jephthah's face because Jephthah's not going to back down like Gideon does. So what Jephthah does is he kind of looks and goes, first of all, let's get something straight here. I did call you guys, and you didn't show up. So don't go playing me like this. I know better. But it was worse than that. 
Because we go back a little bit farther and what we realize is in the book of Joshua, when they were going to take the land, Ephraim should have gone and taken this land below them. They contended with Joshua. They've been contentious for a while here. And they contended with Joshua because the land they got wasn't enough for them. And Joshua says, hey, well then take the land below you. You guys are up in the mountains. Take the land below you. And they're like, no, there's giants here. He's like, well, look, if you guys are so bad, you're so tough, well, then take them on. And they're like, but they have chariots of iron. Yeah, and he goes, but you are Ephraimites. And they should have won. But instead, they go and hide up in the mountains, which makes them very hard to reach. Hey, when we get to that place where we start compromising because there's something in our life that we just don't want God to deal with and we really don't want the battle, but we know we need to walk in the victory beyond it, we'll find ourselves so secluded and so insular that when anyone else needs our help, we are in no position to help at all. Well, that's clearly what Ephraim was. And then what ultimately happens is either you look at yourself and you say, something's got to change, or you just become a critic of everybody else. Have you seen it? Have you seen the person where they had an opportunity to really walk with Jesus, but they decided instead they kind of wanted a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the, of the world that was taking them down before? Kind of like, you know, they were dying of AIDS and they got cured of it, but now they really kind of want a little bit of health, but a little bit of AIDS? Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. And then what happened is they just went up criticizing everybody else. And now they write articles about how stupid Christians are, but they call themselves a Christian, that kind of thing. Well, that's the Ephraimites. And the community of Ephraim, by the way, was there just there to pick a fight with God's people, but they don't show up to the real battle. So, he says he shuts them down, and guess what happens? A fight incurs. Verse 4. Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. Now, I understand what they're saying is you guys, you guys aren't even really part of us. It's always interesting to me when you've got a group of people who won't follow what the Lord calls them to, but somehow they decide they're the exclusive group and somehow you need to join their club if you're going to be really an awesome Christian. There are a lot of cults like that and there are a few in our area. And the whole idea of it is they start asking, are you, well, yeah, okay, I heard you were baptized, but, but were you baptized into our church? Scripturally, by the way, you're not baptized into a church. You're baptized into the body of Christ. You're baptized into his death and resurrection, buried with him in baptism, raised in newness of life. But the moment they start doing that, and they're like, yeah, okay, you think you're saved, but are you really a disciple? And you ask, of course, you bite the hook, and you say, well, what does that mean? And they're like, well, and, but they have their definition, which somehow ultimately relates to you having to be a part of their church. Hey, listen, we don't even have a membership here. All I want you to do is fall in love with Jesus, be a member of the body of Christ, and be where he calls you. I just want you to prosper in Jesus. You don't certainly need my vote to be saved. And by the way, we should all be thankful for that. So in this particular case, they try to exclude him. And now they're like, you know, you guys, you guys aren't real Christians. That's what they're saying here. It's just 3,000 years ago, so they're not using that term yet. Troublemakers. Proverbs 22.10 says, Cast out the scoffer and contentions will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. The problem is, what does a scoffer look like? Well, let me ask you. You tell me, what does it mean to scoff? What does it mean? When was the last time you said, Deborah, did you ever say to Hugo, forgive me for scoffing? Well, that's the problem. We kind of look at that and go, oh. To scoff means to complain about someone else. 
It means to make fun of someone else. It means in pride to, to try to show that someone's less than you. To scoff means to speak with disdain about someone else. But you know the problem is? Those things... Forgive me for this graphic particular reference, but it, it's the one that makes the most sense to me. A couple Thursday mornings, every Thursday morning, Daniel and I, we go to a rehab house down in Broccoli. We love the guys. It is such a sweet thing. And these guys are scraped off out of dumpsters. I mean, it's a really, it's a heavy situation. And I, we love them so much. But it is, you're, we're taking now the rush hour trains. So you're there in the morning. For me, it's, um, I'm leaving about 7. And I'm getting on a train. And our trains are, are packed. A couple of weeks ago, it was raining and it was really cold. That classic great weather if you are a flu bug. And uh, it, which makes the, the windows all steamy and it makes it really hot in there. And someone came in, this sort of large, this large gal. I'll bless her for this. And she comes in, and you could just tell she's not feeling really that great or whatever. She doesn't kind of, she kind of comes in a little gingerly. And she's there kind of with her friend. And we're all kind of just, you know, at that point you're at that position where you're just kind of crammed. And I try to keep my hands up just so that, you know, in case something weird happens, it's clear it's not me, you know. You know and I'm just kind of, hey, and it's nice to be tall. I kind of see over. And this gal just decides, apparently whatever culture she's from, that apparently in her culture, farting is okay, and it's okay to do it as loud and as strong and as just loud and proud in a place like that. And so, you know, first of all, there's that front, and then there's, of course, the immature giggles that will come with that. But then there is this dread, because we're all shoved in this can, and it's one of the longest portions between stops. And it's already really hot. So we're kind of in this sauna, and you just kind of know that it's, it's like, Oh, God, please let it just be air. Let it just be. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it was it was really, really bad. And I'm not trying to be gross. Well, I'm kind of, but I'm trying to I'm proving a point is that by the time we got to the next stop, people purposely left the train trying to get on another car. But they were coming. They were coming off the train and they were smelling themselves and they still smelled like it. They hadn't done it. But somehow, by the time it was done, they were carrying the smell of it. This is what happens when we scoff. We, if you'll pardon me for saying, we kind of just fart all over everybody. We, we kind of, we, you know, it's like we, we complain and we say nasty things. I mean, we were like, it was a happy day and it was rainbows and my little pony a moment ago. I was smiling and I, I opened my hand and Skittles were flying out. And now all of a sudden it's like, and everything's stinky and yucky and blah, and it's gross. And it's like, what happened? Somebody came in the place and that's what they did. And Proverbs says, you know what you got to do? Out of love for everyone, get them out of the train car. With all due respect, ma'am, I recommend you take a bus. Anyways, you kind of get the idea. And, and, and the reason I say that is, is that we have a whole tribe of scoffers here. This particular group, and I remind you, we were kind of almost warned with those first two guys. Because remember, the guy that was in Ephraim wasn't even supposed to be there, and there was no fruitfulness with him. And now we kind of see that here. <coughs> the Gileadites, by the way, which was that second guy of those judges, yeah, well, that's what he was doing. He, on the other hand, was quite fruitful, and he came in peace. Well, now there's a battle. The Gileadites, by the way, from where Jephthah was from as well, we read in verse 5, seize the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrive. 
Well, it says this, first of all, in verse 4. You have to gather together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. Now, the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said this. They, they, they just took him down. They said, you guys aren't even really Israelites. They're like, well, oddly enough, the real Israelites are taking down these posers at this moment that aren't acting anything like God called them to. Well, now there's this great victory and Ephraim's losing. And the Gilead sees the ford of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. Remember, I remind you how they've kind of come over now. And as they've kind of come over, Ephraim's now gone from their area, crossing the Jordan over to the east side. Now they're trying to get back. But the problem is, as they're trying to get back, the Gileadites now have taken over that property. So they have to try to get through. But they were the ones that were starting the fight. Now they're trying to pretend like they're not Ephraimites, is what they're trying to do. And when an Ephraimite escaped and said, let me cross over, and a man from Gilead would say, are you an Ephraimite? They would say, no. You know, imagine it's, it's France and England, and the French have seized the channel, and they ask, are you French? And they're like, no. I mean, no. So it says that they said to him then, well, then say, Shibboleth. Is that the weirdest thing you've ever heard? And they would say, Sibboleth. For what it's worth, it's an interesting thing. Obviously, here's the, here's the thing. Because Ephraim has put themselves in, this, in their little mountainous area where they pulled themselves to their ivory tower to make fun of everyone else, even their language starts to change. And can I say that will happen to you too? There may be a time. Do you remember a time where praise the Lord came out of your mouth pretty easy? Matter of fact, it came out just naturally or supernaturally. And prayer was something that wasn't awkward. It just happened. And if people didn't like it, bummer for them. And you were excited about it. And the name of Jesus was not something that you had to bite out. And then you get to that place where all of a sudden you kind of compromise and you back off and you kind of pull into your little area and you insulate. And now all of a sudden those words don't come so naturally. And now it's a very different language. Well, that's what we're seeing here. Now, interestingly enough, the word is, is the same. And, and to this day, the, last, um, the second to last letter in the Hebrew alphabet is the letter Shin, when there is a dot here, and it's Shin when it's here because of this particular variation. But it's the same letter. It looks kind of like a pitchfork, if you will. It's the letter we get, for instance, Shabbat or Sabbath from. It starts with that. But notice, even with that, Shabbat is the Hebrew way of saying it. We say Sabbath. Notice the sh became a sh. Interesting, the word shibboleth, though, in its simplest sense, means a flowing stream, which, by the way, by with Jordan. But by the time you turn into shibboleth, it actually means an ear of corn. And that's, of course, the dangerous things start to change. It isn't just that you're mis- mispronouncing it. It becomes something altogether different. I have a friend who looks like a Viking. Pasty white, big, big guy. Fell in love with a Chinese girl. Very, very sweet gal. Half his size. Little giggles all the time. Very, very sweet girl named Grace. And he really wanted to impress her mother by asking for her hand in marriage. The problem is, if you know anything about Chinese, Chinese is a very, uh, well, it's more than just saying the, the words. I mean, you also have inflections. Well, anyway, so he goes to ask her. And in the essence, of it, he's asking, may I marry your daughter? And, and the mother and the girl both giggle. And then she says, well, you may marry my daughter, but you may not borrow my duck. Because what he actually had asked was, may I borrow your duck? And again, that's just what happens when you try to add a little bit of the language into things and you're not really sure what you're doing. Here, they're asking, say the word shibboleth, and they're saying, shibboleth. 
And at that point, they know that they're Ephraimites. They didn't pronounce it. But by the way, notice, by the way, it doesn't say that, well, they had a new way of saying it. According to the text in verse 6, it says he could not pronounce it right. Notice that. There was a right way to say it, and they were no longer saying it that way. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell that day 42,000 Ephraimites. 42,000 guys showed up to fight their own. It was like a civil war. Now, as things start to change, what we learn in all of this is that there was a defenseless of those over the Jordan before this. Remember, there was that group that kind of compromised and didn't cross the Jordan in the first place. They will always be the first to get attacked. If you want to kind of live out in the world, but try to just bank on this sort of just, I said a prayer once thing, you will always be the first to get attacked because you're the closest to the enemy. And, you, and it's like, you can't even, you know, and this is what we see, beloved. You watch somebody and, and somewhere in it, we think church is just hearing a guy talk for a bit. And if that's really the case, then why not stay in your PJs, get a good cup of tea, and stay in bed and find something on the Internet? There's some great guys there. If that's really all church is. The problem is what happens when you do get hit. And a woman comes in and says, my husband just had a stroke. We need help. And she's talking to a total stranger. We have no relationship. We have no history whatsoever. She has no one to call on to help with her kids, to help clean her house. She has no one now to help. You know, obviously, they're going to try to hit the church up for money, but there's so much more. And she's very, very alone and very, very scared because she had no place. She was kind of off in her own fray. She had no fellowship. She had no family that she could call on. Beloved, do you realize God has intended church to be so much more than just listening to what I talk? Hear me on this for a second, and we'll get back into this and close this up, and we're almost done now. We're going to meet three other little characters, and they're kind of as quick as the first two in the two chapters ago. Remember the story when Mary was given a miracle. We're talking about Mary that will become Jesus' mother. An angel visits her and tells her something that makes no sense. It's unscientific. <clears throat> There's no precedent. There is promise all the way through the book of Isaiah and all the way back in Genesis 3. There is a promise of a virgin given birth, which makes no sense. And people, they, you know, they think it's such a strange thing that they try to say, well, isn't it the same word for young lady? So it's just a young lady. But God says, this will be a sign, a miraculous sign to you. A virgin's going to give birth. It's not such a miracle for a young girl to give birth. God's like, this is going to be so weird. You're going to stand up and go, whoa, okay, that's strange. And so Mary goes, and, and it doesn't matter who you are, how pure of a life you've lived, no matter how unquestionable your morals and your standards have been, how great of a daughter you've been, you try to tell your dad you're pregnant and God did it. Who's going to believe you? I mean, it, it just, there's just, you know, good luck on that one. So Mary's in a situation now where she's in a tight-knit Jewish community, which is a very classic thing 2,000 years ago. Everybody knows everybody's business. And... And somewhere in that the news is going to get out sooner or later that Mary's, well, she's not using those particular materials that are necessary monthly to show that that's not the case. And, of course, that creates all kinds of talk. And imagine what it would be like, ladies, if that were you. And all of a sudden, sooner or later, that baby's going to show. It doesn't matter how much 
you try to diet or the clothes you wear, sooner or later the baby bump's going to start showing. But now you want to hide it. This is a miracle from God. The Savior of the world is going to come through you. The entire universe is going to be different. And you are the vehicle for that. But at this moment, it doesn't feel like a great thing. You know what it feels like? It feels like the thing that you know people are going to point and laugh. They're going to whisper when you walk away. It's going to be, you're going to be the butt of all kinds of jokes. You know that's where that's going to be. And if that was the end of the story, if there was an abortion clinic 2,000 years ago and that was the whole story, how would Mary have pondered it if that's all she had? But what Mary did was what every one of us need to do. What Mary did is, you see, three months before this point, there was another woman. Only it was a different story, but a similar one. She was really old. And she was really old, and her husband had gone in, because he was part of the priestly order, he had gone in to pray, to do that, that sort of sacramental prayer, offer the incense in the temple. And while he was there, God met him and spoke with him. And, and this tells me how weak prayer must have been back in those days, because the conversation recorded is a very short one, but the people wonder why he was in there for so long. It was like a handful of verses, and that's it. They're like, wow, he sure is in there a long time. It's been like three minutes. I wonder, wow, what kind of prayer were they offering? Well, and he comes out, now he can't speak. But the woman, this really old gal, now is pregnant. <laughs> with a promise. With a miracle from God. And that happened three months ago, and they happened to be related. So you know what Mary did? Mary went and found somebody more pregnant with the promise than she was. She, went, she was able to go into a place where somebody else had the same, in essence, the same gift in such a way so that she didn't feel like it was something to hide. It was something to be ashamed of. But rather, the moment she walks in, you can see the, you know, the aunt, she's like, Woo! Man, what's the mother of my Lord doing here? And you could, the response was so happy and it was so full of joy because there was somebody that knows the miracle of the promise that's been placed inside of them. And then we go out into that world out there, and they don't want to hear that. And if that's your entire world, how do we have a thriving walk if that's, what we, that's the only thing we know? Isn't that one of the reasons we're supposed to have this? So that we can say, isn't it great to be filled with God? Isn't it great to have our sins cleansed? Isn't it great to have that old person, that nasty, rotten thing killed and have a brand new life? And here we can say, oh, isn't that great? We can get all excited about it. And if we think that all it is is about hearing a guy talk in church, then it means our whole world's out there and this is basically like seeing a movie. Only may not have had to pay or whatever and you don't get popcorn. Here in this story, by the way, beloved, we're in a situation here where these guys have put themselves out. The, the Gileadites were on one side, but they were sitting ducks because they just, they were, they were a Jordan away from the rest of God's people. But they were sure in the lap of the enemy. So why wouldn't they get attacked first? They were at their doorstep. And they had no place to retreat to. Well, now the situation is, of course, at this point, that once they did cross it, they found all of a sudden strange things happening in the place where they should have been. 
people coming in and, and just throwing all of this rubbish in their face. Well, that was the Ephraimites. And people would say, you know, I went to church once, but somebody, like, all they did was yell at me and they tell me all these horrible things and all of this. And they judged me. Well, look, at, listen to the difference. There is sin and sin is wrong, but you are not sin. You're a human being. Sin is wrong whether you do it or I do it. It doesn't matter who it is. And we have to ask ourselves, is somebody judging me or is someone judging it? But as a doctor, you would want a doctor to be judgmental. You'd want him to say, this is cancer, this is bad, what do you say we get rid of it? And it would be bad if he had it too. This is Zika. You don't want it, he doesn't want it. This is Ebola. You don't want it, he doesn't want it. It's bad. It doesn't matter who has it, it's bad. This is HIV. You don't want it. He doesn't want it. Because it's bad, it doesn't matter who it is. And sin is bad regardless. But there are those that are just like, you're a rotten, miserable, you know, where you're the problem. Well, that's, that's the Ephraimites. But you find out these scoffers, by the way, got dealt with, and they got dealt with harshly here. And what, by the way, by the, we end this story, that was the last great thing Yephthah did. Verse 7 says, Yephthah judged Israel six years. Then Yephthah the Gilead died and was buried and among the cities of Gilead. And we have then these last three guys who are kind of honorable mentions, which prepares us, by the way, as we walk through this and finish this. Next week, we begin the story of Samson, because that's what remains. And then, the most disturbing story in all of Scripture, in my opinion, is after Samson. Did you know that the Judges book of Judges doesn't end with Samson? But with a story so bizarre, you almost want to go, is that really in Scripture? Is that how bad man gets? People are like, well, if God's so good. Why are all these things happening? And you go, yeah, but if man was decent, why are these things happening anyways? Because God gives man a choice. So here they are, verse 6. Verse 8, I'm sorry. After him, Ibzan. Try, try these words with me. Try Ibzan. Try it. It's kind of a fun word to say. It means their splendor are breaking forth. In a positive sense, that means glory. In a negative sense, it means like boils or blisters. But by the way, so get the idea of this bursting forth, this breaking forth, this glorious thing of Bethlehem judged Israel. This is what we read about him. He had 30 sons. He gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Probably because he didn't have a lot of time because he had so many children. And Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now, how important are children in a Middle Eastern culture even to this day? I mean, here, we don't start having children until our 30s. There, by 30s, you may have had six children. There are places that I know where the average household has between six and 11 children. So the idea here is that this guy not only had sons, he was fruitful, but he had daughters that were fruitful that wound up for every daughter that he gave away in marriage, he also received a daughter for his own sons as well. This man was not just fruitful for a generation. This man was fruitful for several. That's a really good thing, and it means breaking forth. And where did that happen? Bethlehem. After him was a guy named Elon. Try that. Elon. Elon. Matter of fact, I think there's a guy that works. Is he spelled with an A or an E? Do you know? An A. Okay. Well, similar idea here. Elon. Elon, by the way, it can mean, well, like Elah, which would like be like the Valley of Elah where David took on uh, 
Goliath, which means, if you will, it means oaks. But the word in a simple sense means strength, strong, personal might. But look at what we read about him. He's a Zebulonite. He's from the tribe of Zebulun. He judged Israel. He judged them for ten years. And Alon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijon. That's it. What do we read about the guy? Well, we know his name. We, do we know what his dad's name is? According to this text. You tell me. Verses 11 and 12. It's all we get on this guy. Do we know his dad's name? It just says he was a Zebulonite. And then he died. That's it. We don't read any children. Interesting, it's the one guy whose name means my strength or strength. And then Zebulonite died and was buried in Ayelon. By the way, it's roughly, it's in the tribe of the city of Dan, 14 miles or 25 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem. It's, by the way, interesting because this was the place where Joshua had the sun stand still, if you remember in that great battle in Joshua 10. So we have these three guys, Ibzan, Elon, and then lastly after him, Abdon. Try Abdon. I have a couple of good friends named that. Abdon means servant or servile. The son of Hillel, the Pirathite, he judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, Hillel means praise, the Pirathonite, died and was buried in Pirathon, appropriately, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. Wait a minute. Did you notice that? What If he was buried in the land of Ephraim, shouldn't it be the mountains of Ephraim? But ultimately what happens is, is you continue to compromise and make the church your enemy. Even the land you do have will be occupied by the enemy. That's the problem here. We do read that this guy was fruitful. He was fruitful for at least two generations. And his name means servant or servile. In the good sense, we see that. In the bad sense, it appears to me that Ephraim has become servants to the Amalekites, who, by the way, they were supposed to have had the land over. So this is how we end the area. On one side of it, you have these, the situation where Ephraim has just gone into the face of God's people, even though they're supposed to be God's people themselves, looking for a fight, even though they should have been joining the battle when it was really a real battle. As a result of that, they wound up dying and they wound up really diminishing and they've lost any power and authority and influence. And then and ultimately, as a result of that, we see by the end of this story that even the place that was theirs is no longer really theirs anymore. Hey, look, at, let me warn you of something. We as Christians, we have, we have our terms and we have this whole thing about 10 years ago where we were just told, you know, don't use those words, you'll lose people. Don't use words like redeemed or born again. The problem is, when we stopped using them, the world started. And every word that we gave up, the world just took. It wasn't like we stopped saying them and the world's like, oh, thank you so much for speaking our language. Interesting, the church has. It's become more foul. It's become more, it's like we're quicker to, to say curse words and things that we would never have said before. Interesting, the biggest one, and you've heard me say this before, is that we stopped saying the name of Jesus, but the world didn't have a problem with that. They just started mentioning him. I mean, when you hear the name Jesus in public, don't you assume that it's not by a Christian? People don't have a problem saying the name of Jesus unless they actually believe in him. How strange is that? 
but they stubbed their toe or they didn't get the right change back or they missed the train. And all of a sudden, they sure are quick to say his name. I've learned that they don't say anyone else's. You're not going to see anyone stub their toe and go, oh, Buddha. You know, you know, or, you know, something happens, someone cuts them off or something. They're like, oh, Muhammad, you, just don't, you don't hear that. The only name they seem to be picking on is the, is the one that is the name above all names. Don't you find that strange? I wonder if God's allowing that because we, God's like, hello, shouldn't we be the ones saying his name on the opposite side of it? So now people associate his name with something negative, don't they? So they go, if you hear someone say, oh, something probably bad really happened to that guy. Could you imagine if we were as quick with it when something great happened? Wouldn't that be awesome? All of us says something beautiful happens and go, oh, Jesus Christ. Not in vain, but to thank him. Wouldn't it be awesome if we took it back? I mean, to these days, there are certain things that's like, you know, the rainbow was a sign of God's covenant, but we use that today, that means something different. I mean, we need to get the rainbow back. But I think we need to start with the name of Jesus. So by the time we get to the end of this story, and this is where we need to pray on all of this, do we know this guy? I mean, the one who not only died on a cross. I mean, and that's the part that somehow we hate and love. <clears throat> we hate it because we know that means sacrifice. We love it because it means our price was paid. We love the fact that that means there's cleansing, there's redemption, there's payment. But please hear me. That's half the story. He rose again as promised on the third day and deserves to be our Lord. Not just Savior. He's not just our biblical bellhop. It's not just sort of Christ, the, you know, the chauffeur, the valet. He's the Lord and King, victorious over everyone. Hell and sin and guilt could not stop him. The devil threw his best at him and came up empty. And in all of that, I look at this one and somehow I want this guy to be just my bodyguard. Like, just follow me around, Jesus, and if I get in trouble, bail me out. And what we realize is if we live that kind of life, we live like we're living on this side of the Jordan. And we're asking for it. And God in his love may allow us to get our rear end kicked a couple times just so that we realize we're not where we're supposed to be. But on the other side of it, God's like, look, I don't want you living your whole life like the book of Judges. What I'd really like is to be intimate and close and, and so into you, enjoying you. I created you for a relationship with me. Not just so I could be your attorney. Not just so I could be your payment. But I could be your first love. And for that to happen, you have to take him for who he is. And he's Lord of all. And to let that happen, he's going to put, us, put you in a place where you can prosper in him. And look, at that doesn't mean he's going to give you a Bentley. But better yet, he's going to give you his Bible. And in your whole life, everything you wanted in the world that you couldn't get in the world comes through his spirit. And you realize you don't even need those things to have the contentedness that really comes through Christ. And it comes first by being loved. If you've said yes to that, Jesus, let me ask you, where are you at in the Jordan? Are you in the camp of the Ephraimites just making fun of other Christians? It's amazing how someone can critic something, critique something they don't do. On the other side of it, are you just on the wrong side of the Jordan? Or are you like one of those people who kill you and say, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to take this thing on. And I'm going to take whatever battles the Lord puts before me because the battle isn't mine anyways. The battle belongs to him. I'm supposed to walk behind him to collect the spoils. That's what I want to do here. But God, I want to walk. I just sit. I want to grow. Because that's our prayer now for us. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text.
I thank you, Lord, that you can make clear to us, even tonight, where we're at, for real. And not just where we kind of think, oh yeah, Mom, I'm cool. But sincerely to say, Lord, if there's any part of me that is on the wrong side of the Jordan, and you know, I think some of us, we may battle that. We don't even want to say that, but we know we should. But we're tired of getting kicked around and we're tired of these unnecessary battles to try to keep ground instead of gain it. We feel like we're so close to the enemy that he just kind of, it's almost like he has a key to the door and he kind of comes in and starts a fight whenever he wants. And Lord, I pray that you would get us on the offensive and stop us from being just on the defensive. And but put us people, Lord, where your gospel is quick on our lips and your name, Jesus, is the name, that's a name, that only name by which all men on earth, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. God, that that name would be quick on our lips. And we recognize that may get us some looks but it may get us some looks from people who will ultimately find deliverance in that name. And I pray that you would put us in that place, Lord, where we would be such a healthy fellowship. One where we could be like Elizabeth and Mary, encouraging each other to not be ashamed of the very great miracle, the greatest miracle that we could ever have, this life inside of us, but rather to rejoice in it. And from that, to break forth into great, constant praise. Jesus, we do confess, Lord, that you did die on the cross for us. We recognize that payment paid for all of our sin and our guilt and our shame. We recognize that. But we also recognize tonight that you rose from the dead as Scripture promised on the third day. And you have a right to be our, our Lord as well as Savior. Our Master. Our Messiah. We want to do more than just give you our, our filth. You're not just the great rubbish bin collector. We want to give you our lives. And say, now, reinvent us. Put us in that place, Lord, as you tell us, he was planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. Lord, plant us in such a way that we would prosper in you. Thrive in you. Jesus says, you are the Lord of our lives now. Do what you desire to do with it, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you, beloved, for the opportunity tonight to be in the Word with you. Thank you for the privilege of being your pastor. And I just, be encouraged, uh, encouraging to each other. Have some tea. Defrost. You know, it's amazing is you can go near the radiators and they're actually quite warm, or, or at least it appears to be me. And uh, so maybe you can all huddle around the radiator. God bless you.